We turn this afternoon to the book of Nahum, chapter 1. Nahum chapter 1. The burden of Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry, and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth, and Carmel and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt. And the earth is burned at his presence, yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. What do ye imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. For while they be folded together as thorns, and while they be drunken as drunkards, they shall be devoured as stubble full dry. There is one come out of thee that imagineth evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus saith the Lord, Though they be quiet, and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down, when he shall pass through. Though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. For now will I break his yoke from off thee, and will burst thy bonds in sunder. And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee, that no more of thy name be sown. Out of the house of thy gods will I cut off the graven image and the molten image. I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts, perform thy vows. For the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. And that last verse is the text and will be the focus of the sermon this afternoon. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, Nahum was a prophet, evidently from the town of Elkosh. We are not sure exactly where Elkosh was but probably it was a town in the tribe of Judah. Nahum was the prophet who foretold the downfall of Nineveh. And Nineveh was at this time the capital city of the massive Assyrian Empire, which was the first 
of the great world empires in history and lasted about some 300 years in the ancient world. About a century or so before the life of Nahum, God raised up the prophet Jonah. And he sent Jonah, as you recall, to the very same city about which Nahum speaks, Nineveh. But back in the days of Jonah, God had a purpose with Nineveh that involved salvation. God sent Jonah to Nineveh to preach against their wickedness, and God used that preaching of Jonah to humble many of the men of Nineveh and bring them to repentance and conversion. But evidently, it was not the purpose of God to continue his covenant with the men of Nineveh, because it wasn't long before the city became very wicked once again. Eventually, the Assyrian king, Sargon, rose to power, and he was the one who carried away the northern tribes of Israel in the year 722 B.C. His son was Sennacherib, and Sennacherib, as you might recall, was the one who besieged Jerusalem in the days of Hezekiah. Sennacherib was the one who moved the capital city of Assyria from Asher to Nineveh. It was in about the year 700 BC that Nineveh became the capital of this massive world empire of Assyria. The son of Sennacherib was Esarhaddon, whom the Bible also mentions, and he was a person who conquered Egypt and extended the boundaries of Assyria even farther. His son was Ashurbanipal, who conquered the Egyptian city of Thebes far in southern Egypt. Nahum actually refers to the fall of Thebes in chapter 3 of this book, but he refers to that city as populous no. He's referring to the city of Thebes. Thebes was a great Egyptian city that fell to the Assyrians in the 7th century, and at that point, the empire was as large as it would ever become. It was the greatest empire the world had ever seen in the days of Nahum. But the Assyrians gave all the glory for their great kingdom to idol gods. And therefore God laid it upon the heart of Nahum to prophesy against Nineveh. He laid upon his heart the burden of Nineveh, according to verse 1. And that burden of Nineveh was the word from God about Nineveh that he was going to destroy that proud, ungodly, and bloody city for all of its wicked deeds. God sent Nahum as his herald, and he describes himself in our text as the one who stands upon the mountains of Judah, bringing the good tidings and publishing peace to Judah. I bring to you the message of Nahum today, and I stand, as it were, on those same mountaintops of Judah and proclaim to you the good tidings and publish to you the peace of the book of Nahum. Because the message that Nahum brought to Judah in his day is a message that still applies to us today. As we hope to see, it's the message of salvation and judgment a message which is good tidings and comfort for all God's people. Call your attention to the text then under the theme, The Good Tidings of the Fall of Nineveh. 
Notice first that these are tidings of judgment. Secondly, publishing of peace. And thirdly, there's a calling to keep the feasts. In our text, Nahum proclaims, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings. The prophet summons us to look up, as it were, with our mind's eye to the mountains of Judah, because there on the mountaintops are the feet of the messenger, the herald, whom God has raised up and sent to bring good tidings to his people. There on the mountaintops of Judah are the feet of the messenger of good tidings. He has run up the mountain to the top because there he can broadcast his message far and wide and in all directions so that all of the cities of Judah will hear the good tidings and the peace that he has come to proclaim. Nahum speaks language very similar to what he must have read in the book of Isaiah, who lived several decades before Nahum. In Isaiah 40, verse 9, we read, O Zion that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. And in Isaiah 52, verse 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Now Nahum is the one who summons us to look to him, who as it were is standing up on the mountaintops, and speaking the same beautiful language as Isaiah, bringing good tidings to God's people. And the good tidings that Nahum had to bring was about the fall of Nineveh. The message that Nahum brings is a message of judgment, tidings that God is about to pour forth his judgment upon Nineveh. He is about to cut down the power of mighty Assyria, that great world empire. And keep in mind that Assyria was the flowering of the seed of the serpent in the days of Nahum. Assyria was an ungodly, heathen, and anti-Christian empire. And the power and ungodliness of Assyria was centered now in Nineveh, that great and godless city to the east of Jerusalem at the center of the empire. Nahum prophesies to God's people these good tidings, which we have read about in chapter 1, starting in verse 2. God is jealous, he says. God is jealous of his glory. He will not give his glory to heathen gods. And the Lord revengeth. He is furious. He will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. Nahum wants to assure the people of God in Judah and Jerusalem that God is not blind to the atrocities and the wickedness of Nineveh. God sees what they're doing. God sees the temples in Nineveh that have been built up to idol gods, to Ishtar and Asher and all the other gods of the pantheon of Assyria. 
He sees them giving glory and worship and praise to gods that don't exist, rather than acknowledging him, the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth. Nahum assures God's people that God sees this bloody city, chapter 3, verse 1. He calls them a bloody city because they had shed the blood of men, women, and children in nations all across the region, which was the known world. Every nation of the world had suffered the sword and spear of the Assyrian armies that had come out of Nineveh. The corpses lay scattered across the empire of people whom they had cut down and murdered. Nahum assures God's people that he sees the whoredoms and witchcrafts of Nineveh. In chapter 3, he calls Nineveh a city of whoredom and witchcraft, the mistress of whoredom and witchcraft. He compares that city of Nineveh to a whore, a harlot, that uses her charms, that uses her seduction to allure the nations of the world. She allures them by her power, her greatness, her wealth, her great architecture, all the glories of Nineveh. She allures them to commit abomination in the worship of idol gods. And Nahum assures God's people that God is not blind to all of this evil. God knows, in fact, that the prince of darkness is at work in Nineveh. Satan himself was at work building this kingdom of Assyria. This was his latest attempt and his greatest attempt to date, to build a kingdom over against God and to snuff out the kingdom of God and to cut off the line of Christ. God saw all of it. And Nahum assures God's people that although God is slow to anger and although God is good, God is also just and he is furious with wrath and indignation towards his enemies and he will cut them down. Nahum points out that God is the one in the whirlwind and the storm, that the mountains quake under him and the hills melt, chapter 1, 3 through 5. He tells God's people in chapter 1, 12 through 14, that God will cut down Nineveh. He will bury Nineveh in a grave because she is vile. In chapter 3, he says that God will cast abominable filth upon her and make her vile as a gazing stock. Nahum then speaks to Nineveh. O Nineveh, he says in chapter 3, are you better, are you mightier than populous no? than the great Egyptian city of Thebes that you cut down, whose children you dashed into pieces, whose buildings you burned? Are you greater than them? No, you're not. Just as you cut down Thebes, your enemies will cut you down. Just as you dashed their children to pieces, they will dash yours to pieces. Your enemies will flood into your gates and burn you to the ground. What dreadful news. For Nineveh. But what glad tidings for little Judah. And we must remember that Judah was like a little island in the sea of the Assyrian Empire at this time, surrounded on all sides by the power of Assyria. And now God assures his people You see Nineveh, great, glorious, powerful Nineveh, 
I will cut them down and burn them and destroy them for all their evils. Now the message of Nahum still applies to us today and still assures and encourages us today as the people of God living in the midst of a wicked and hostile world. The message of Nahum to us is that God will cut down and destroy the mighty and godless cities of the world. The cities that we think of like Toronto and New York and Beijing and all of the other mighty and godless cities that are eventually going to culminate in the one great city of the beast, the Antichrist, in the last days. And we as the church are like this little island in the sea of godless cities and godless nations. And although missionaries go into those heathen nations and bring the gospel and bring the kingdom of God, yet those mighty heathen nations still surround us and threaten to destroy us. And so God assures us through Nahum that he will cut down the city of the world. The assurance that God gives us through the book of Nahum is in the fact that he fulfilled the prophecy of Nahum. Nahum lived in the 600s B.C. He lived in the middle of the 7th century. He lived in the time immediately after the fall of Thebes in Egypt, which historians say took place in the 660s B.C. Nahum lived shortly after that because he was aware of that historical event, and he predicts the fall of Nineveh which actually took place about 40 years later, in the year 612 B.C. This is well attested even by worldly historians. God fulfilled the prophecy he gave to Nahum. He cut down and destroyed Nineveh. The Assyrian Empire came to an end suddenly in a great collapse when the Babylonians, with the help of the Medes, invaded Nineveh and destroyed it. That was God fulfilling his prophecy through Nahum. The might, the great power of Assyria suddenly was brought down and was destroyed and crumbled into the dust. But although God fulfilled his prophecy to Nahum, it was only a temporary and initial fulfillment. And we can see that because although Nineveh fell, Babylon replaced it. In the place of Nineveh, Babylon rose to power and became the mighty empire. And after Babylon, Persia rose to power and its capital city was Susa. And after the Persians were brought down, then the Greek empire rose in its place and mighty Greek cities ruled the world. Until finally the city of Rome wiped out that empire and began to rule over the nations. So from one godless city to the next. But it was in the days of Rome that God fulfilled the prophecy of Nahum in its greater and ultimate fulfillment when he sent his own son into the world. God sent his son into the midst of all of this history of nations and cities and kingdoms and emperors. Jesus was born in the days of Caesar Augustus, the ruler of Rome and the Roman Empire. 
And God sent his son into the world, into that empire, to seal the doom and destruction of all ungodly cities and empires. But the way that God's son did that was a most unexpected way. He did it by handing himself over to the empire. He did it by giving himself up to the representative of that godless city, Pontius Pilate. He did it by laying down his life for his people on the accursed cross. Because it was by giving himself over to God's enemies, to the ungodly cities of the world, and by their condemnation of the innocent Son of God, and their affixing of him to the accursed cross, that they sealed their doom and their judgment. They committed the greatest atrocity of all time at the cross. The world did. All the cities of the world opposed God's Son and hung him on the cross. And in that way, they sealed their everlasting judgment and destruction. And it was in the way of God's Son in the way of his love for us, in the way of his giving up and laying down his life, going as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before her shears, opening not his mouth. That was the way Christ conquered Rome and all the empires of the world. But as Nahum says, God is slow to anger. And what that means is also this, that God endures with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath that are fitted to destruction. Which is why, after the death of Christ, did not immediately come the kingdom of Christ. It was not yet the end of the world. It was not yet the end of the cities of the world. But he arose and ascended into glory. And now God bears with much long-suffering, the vessels of wrath, even as he gathers his elect out of the nations, the time will come when God will send Christ again. And that will be the final fulfillment of Nahum as well. Because when Christ returns on the clouds of glory, he will come in the brightness of his power and justice, and he will destroy the beast and his city. He will cast them into the lake of fire and brimstone. And that's the glad tidings for us. Because we are just a little flock. We are a little congregation. But we are also a little flock in the sense of all God's people and all the churches throughout the whole world are still but a little flock. Surrounded on all sides by the forces of darkness that press in upon us. So this is good news. Our God promises that he sees the wickedness of the ungodly world. And after he has gathered all of his people out of it, he will come in judgment and destroy the kingdom of the beast. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. Nahum also proclaims peace to God's people 
when judgment has run its course, then there follows peace for God's people. Is there anything sweeter or more precious than peace? Is there anything better than peaceful tranquility, rest after a time of war, a time of conflict, a time of bearing arms and bloodshed, rest, peace, tranquility, in which the swords and the spears are forged again in the fires and beaten into plowshares and pruning hooks, so that where there was war, now there is peace, and God's people can go about their tasks of tilling the ground and reaping the goodness of the Lord. In a land in which there is no trouble, in which there are no adversaries, in which there are no threats, no more danger, but peace. The Hebrew word for peace, shalom, can also carry the idea of health and wellness in the body and the soul and the mind. It can refer to that state of being within our souls in which we feel at peace. We don't feel any anxiety and turmoil and fear, but we are at peace with God and his will and his ways in our relationship with him. Nahum publishes peace. Nahum prophesies to God's people that God will bring you peace, perfect peace, just as he has done so in the past. Nahum remembered what God had done in the days of Isaiah in the previous century. Nahum remembered that in the days of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, when the armies of Assyria flooded into Jerusalem or around Jerusalem, after his father Sargon had already carried the northern tribes away into captivity, and now Sennacherib's army of 185,000 have Jerusalem besieged. But Isaiah said to King Hezekiah, Don't be afraid. Put your trust in Jehovah your God. Go to him. Humble yourself before him. Look to him. He is mighty to save you. He's mighty to deliver you. And Hezekiah did. He laid himself out before God in prayer and committed his way to the Lord. And that night God sent the angel who by a wonder, amazing wonder, killed all of the soldiers of Assyria in one night. And there followed peace. God did a miracle to push Assyria out of Judah. That's why they were an island in the sea of the empire. Because Assyria had not conquered Judah. God had delivered them by a wonder of his grace and given his people peace. But in the decades that followed Isaiah, Assyria did not shrink in power but grew. So that now in the time of Nahum, it is as big as it has ever been, the greatest empire the world has seen. And the armies of Assyria were constantly passing through Judah. Even though they had not conquered it, they passed through. They went down to Egypt, and they went back to Assyria, and back to Egypt, and back to Assyria. And constantly they were making trouble and turmoil for God's people. But Nahum says, 
Don't be afraid. God is going to cut down Nineveh. And God is going to give you peace. Thus saith the Lord, chapter 1, verse 12. Though they be quiet, seemingly, and likewise many, Assyria, yet thus shall they be cut down when he shall pass through. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. For now will I break his yoke from off thee, and will burst thy bonds in sunder. And in our text, verse 15, the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. The time is coming, God said, when you won't see those Assyrian armies passing through anymore, because I'm going to cut them down, and I'm going to give you peace. As we've seen, God fulfilled that prophecy in the fall of Nineveh in 612 B.C., but we also saw that this peace was short-lived. It was not a lasting peace, because it was only a few years later, only a few decades later, that Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon burned Jerusalem to the ground and brought them into captivity in Babylon. No, the prophecy of Nahum's peace points forward to a higher and better and eternal peace. And that's why the Apostle Paul can quote this text in Romans 10, verse 15. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul in Romans 10 says that whosoever believes in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection and whoever confesses the name of Christ shall be saved. But how shall they believe unless they have heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written in Isaiah and Nahum, how beautiful are the feet on the mountains of them that preach the gospel of peace. But the Apostle Paul, he knows the fullness of the fulfillment of Nahum in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel of peace that I preach is that Christ has vanquished all of our enemies once and for all on the cross. On the cross, he has overcome the serpent. He has crushed his head. He has overcome all of the kingdoms of the world in one moment of the cross. And he has obtained for us salvation and peace. He has vanquished the enemy within our own flesh. The enemy that tempts us, against which we struggle day after day, it's already defeated. And the gospel of peace is that God will give us peace through our Lord Jesus Christ now and forever. God will send Christ again. He will send Christ for you and me personally and take us up into glory where we will have peace. And he will send Christ on the very last day to cast all of our enemies into the lake of fire and bring us into the kingdom of glory where there will be peace. Is there anything sweeter and better than peace? Tranquility of mind and soul and body to be free of the anxieties and fears and turmoils that we fight against here regarding our health, regarding our children, regarding our marriages, regarding our friendships, families, work, 
finances, regarding society around us, peace. We do well to lay hold upon the gospel of peace as we continue to live our lives here below. As, for example, too, in respect to the church, we look at the turmoil and troubles that continue in the church, in the church world around us, and in our own denomination. Delegates from our church go to classes this week and consider matters of great weight from an agenda, matters that have been struggles for several years now, doctrinal disputes, revelations of abuse. And these are things that can trouble us, make us fearful and anxious and wonder what is happening. How long is this going to continue? When is this going to end? What is the future with regard to our churches, this denomination, and the church world at large, where there are also troubles? We're not the only denomination with troubles. All of these things threaten our peace. And then we just look at society and watch the news and hear about wars in Israel and the threat of wars, China, North Korea, Russia, Iran, and all of these great ungodly nations and cities. We do well to lay hold upon the gospel of peace. There's peace for us, a peace that passes understanding to keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4. We do not need to worry, beloved, about the church here in Wingham, the denomination that we were a part of, the church world at large. God has everything under control. God is taking care of everything perfectly, according to his perfect plan. And he's bringing everything to that last great glorious day when we will have undisturbed peace for all eternity. Therefore, O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts and perform thy vows to the God of your salvation. That's the calling that comes from Nahum in our text. There were three solemn feasts in Israel in the Old Testament. There was the Feast of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Those were the great festivals. And every year, the people of God were to go up to Jerusalem with their offerings and sacrifices to keep the feast days. They were to celebrate and commemorate the great things God had done for them in the past. That was one of the purposes of those feast days. Don't forget. Remember what God has done for you in delivering you out of Egypt in giving you the harvest in the land of Canaan, in protecting you from your enemies. Keep thy solemn feast days, O Judah. Don't neglect them. In many times in the history, they neglected those feast days. They didn't bother. They didn't go up to Jerusalem. They forgot all about it. Keep thy solemn feast days, O Judah, and perform thy vows. There were many different kinds of vows that God's people took in the Old Testament. But all of those vows were some kind of promise to serve the Lord in a certain aspect of life. 
And he's saying, perform your vows. You made a promise. Now do it. You made a promise to serve the Lord in this aspect of your life. Now keep that vow. Keep your feasts and keep your vows because of all the things God has done for you and all the things he promises still to do. Now God no longer calls us in the New Testament church to keep those solemn feasts, the Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Those were fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. But the sum and substance of the feasts continues with us. The calling still comes to us. Go up to God's house on the Lord's day and worship. Come to God's house, not out of mere habit, but go up to God's house Sunday after Sunday in joy and gratitude to worship your God for all that he's done for you and all that he promises yet to do. He's the God of peace who gives you peace, who promises peace. Keep your solemn feasts and pay your vows. You made a vow when you did confession of faith. You made a promise before the church and before God, acknowledging the doctrine of the Old and New Testament. You acknowledged and promised that you would adhere to that doctrine all your life and you would reject all heresies that are contrary to that doctrine. And you would strive to live a new and godly life. Keep your vow. You promise to submit to church government. And in case you become delinquent to church discipline, keep your vow. When you got married and stood up in the church, you made a vow to your husband and to your wife to be faithful to one another until death do you part. To strive to love each other to care for each other. That implies a vow to work at your marriage, to grow in your marriage, to strengthen those bonds ever from year after year. Keep your vow. You made a vow when you brought your children for baptism. You said, I promise to bring up this child in the doctrine that I also confess or to help or see them brought up in that doctrine to the best of my ability. Keep your vow. That's the calling that comes to us. We are to keep these vows not because in this way we can work or merit our way into heaven, but we are to keep our vows because of all that God has done for us and all that he promises yet to do. That's the ground that he gives in the text. O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts, perform thy vows. Why? For the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. You are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ our Lord. You have the victory. You have salvation. You have eternal life. You have peace with God. And you will have it. So live a life of gratitude until he sends Christ again. Because that's when Nineveh will fall once and for all and never rise again. The city of the beast will be crushed under the foot of Christ. And the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. Amen.
Our Father in heaven, we give thanks to thee for the glorious gospel of peace. We live in times in which there is trouble. We feel that trouble, but we pray, Lord, that thou would remember us in thy grace, that thou would give peace to us in our souls, that we may dwell in the secret place of the Most High and hide under the shadow of the Almighty, that we may find refuge in our relationship with thee as our God, that we may find peace that passes all understanding in whatever trials and afflictions we're currently enduring, and that then we may live thankful lives of worship and thanksgiving 